From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. This episode is the second part of our conversation with the crew from Parker Ben's Vineyard. Wine class of the Wine Mouths is back. Join us as they take us through the next chapter in the history of wine. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen to part two. All right, so we are back. So let's talk a little bit about, let's first start with the wines because you know we're, that's why we're here. So let's talk about a little bit about the wines that you're actually making from the grapes that you're getting from this excellent site. Uh, I would say one of the biggest things that I first learned when I was, when I arrived and kind of saw what Bob and Karen had in barrel and in the bottle was that they wanted a diverse spread of wine style. So there wasn't anything that was hardline to one direction or another, one customer or another, one price more, one price point or another. It was more so that with the vineyard acreage that's had, what are we going to make that's the best that our our customers enjoy drinking? And I I definitely had some notions as far as what you're producing in volume and how that relates to what you produce that you think is maybe the more unique wine. And when you make the most unique thing at the largest volume, sometimes that equation does not work out for you. And uh, the, the brands themselves, where we're showing a varietal on the label, those are the ones that we're probably the most enthusiastic about producing. They could also be the ones that we're we're producing the smallest volumes of. And when you get in behind some of the more fanciful names, those are wines that we're trying to get a, uh, a larger taste profile or a larger palate as far as customer basis goes. And there is a good chance that there's a blend to it. There's a good chance that uh, the varietals might be even unconventional for what you might put together. But that's that's really where the the brand is that I've I've kind of tried to take what Bob and Karen already had and, and build upon that. Um, I think the story that I've always enjoyed the most is Bob's appreciation for a, a wine that gave him a creative label nomenclature to refer to something as a soft red wine. Yeah. And it all started with his tasting of something that was one of the largest selling brands in the United States, and it was labeled as a soft red wine. And I at one time had worked in wine sales and I can say with confidence that that's, that's a term that you would look at and believe that it has definition, but it, it really doesn't have a definition. It's only up for interpretation by the drinker. Kind of fluffy. It is kind of fluffy. Yeah. And I think the, the idea that you're going to take something that's so ambiguous and try and push it back to a, a winery and that winery say, all right, well, I can I can do that. It's like, well, how do you do that in air quotes? <laughs> and I've very much sought working with some of the wines that we've made here to try and actually fit that. And, and one thing that we've sort of shifted and one thing that I've found success with is actually earlier releases on certain varietals. Uh, the Chamberson in our Pea Ridge Red, I think it's I think it's at its best within a year of vintage. And I, I think more often than not, I believe that that grape can kind of lose its magic when you leave it in the barrel for too long. Right. So when I have to tell you what soft red wine means to me, it's the idea that you've got to find that on the palate in the cellar and then figure out how to actually pick that out of the winery and get it in the bottle. That, that to me is probably my biggest interpretation of how, how we've kind of pushed on, on certain wines and wine styles. Um, and, and again, it's working with what, working with what we get from vintage to vintage and what, what this vineyard provides for us. But uh, the, I think the future of what we're working on is we still have had 
uh, a hard work ethic towards trying to build out red wines. You know, red wines are something that I, I think are the most difficult style to make in North Carolina. I'll be I'll be pretty broad about that. It's the unicorn. Yeah. The big red wine. I think the whole East Coast. Yeah. It's, it, when you're dealing with a temperate climate, you cannot just unplug the water supply and have all your grapes desiccate and your sugars go up and all your phenolics just reach a magic ripeness. And a lot of times those are the, the best components in wines out of a Mediterranean climate. So what can we do to get behind the lively characteristics, the fresh fruit characteristics, maybe the mild tannins and, and make a red wine that we're still really excited about a wine that we can grow really well. Uh, but that also relates to our, our customer. Um, so that's, that's where we've, I, I think that's where we are today. And, and I think that's where we are as, as it relates to trying to make some decisions going forward with with this vineyard site and what varietals are grown here well, we built it out like a, i mean you're, you're the one that's always brought up the idea of the pyramid so to speak and it, it applies to like let's call it labels to start with right so like that lulu brand if it can you know air quotes um the p ridge brand air quotes um those are like the approachable wines that we bring to the table every year um i think you know my grandmother's up there calling lulu wines porch pounders <laughs> I mean, that's who we are uh, but yeah these wines are just meant to be you know Justin's always described them as drinking wines not thinking wines um, and we try to like base this on we're trying to make something for everyone and it's actually really interesting because I've never I've never necessarily heard that perspective from you in the sense that when, even when you got here and you started sniffing around inside of barrels you could already kind of tell that they wanted that diversity to the wine portfolio um, and I'm, I'm happy to say years later that, I mean, yeah, I feel that way now. I don't know if I just got, if I just assimilated into what. Well, you know, the, the soft word that Justin mentioned, I just thought soft took it from, because I like dry wines. I did anyhow. Now I've been North Carolina-ized, and I, I like a, a more fruit-forward wine. But I used to like the dry Bordeaux wines which I don't care for as much as I used to. I like the more fruit-forward wines, and I think it's a soft, and that's why I thought the word soft. I like that. I, yeah. But I, I do love, you know, to me, the wines, we all got used to drinking wines from California. You guys are too young to remember, but I remember when you used to buy these wines out there, Ingle Nook and, and uh, Mad Dog and... With all these and the ones prior to them, and they were two bucks for a gallon. <laughs> I mean, it was a different world. It was just a world full of alcohol with a lot of young people getting bombed. <laughs> but then California elevated their wineries to what they are today. They're some of the best in the world. But they have their style, and their style is different, actually, than a lot of places in the world. And I think. North Carolina and the entire East Coast has to come out with their style of wine, which we have, because this is the wines we make. You have to make what the terroir gives you. And this is what we're making. And people, as they grow used to it, will enjoy the wines from this area, maybe even more than the wines from that area. Because it's all, it's all what you get used to. When you're a kid, you start eating a certain thing, you enjoy it, and you enjoy it your whole life. We started young drinking the wines of California, and we got used to them. But now people are getting used to drinking the East Coast wines for the last 20 years, and they're getting used to them. And I can see it. We get orders on Vino Shipper from different parts of the country. I mean, who would have thought years ago people would have been going to Vino Shipper and order wines from North Carolina? I mean, of course, North Carolina was not known as a wine-producing state. Today it is, along with Virginia and New York, North, uh, Northern Georgia. The most diverse. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And also the idea that you're trying to bring in a, a, your generation, as you're saying, there's a difference in age, right? <laughs> so, it's okay so, to imagine, right? So imagine, yes. the, uh, imagine the presence of mind of somebody who's coming into a business like the wine business where the majority of the stakeholders are all older than you 
And you're going to come in and either try to fit in or find your own way. The harder thing is finding your own way. But that's the good thing. And that's, I, I really think that at this point in the North Carolina wine industry, I think that there's, and and I'll, I'll give the, the shameless plug that Bob has given so much support to the idea that young people in the industry should spend time together to learn about what each other's trials and tribulations are and then try and grow off of that. And we've done that. In the past year, we have spent time and we've got a small group that we're hosting a week from today to sit down and taste. Winemakers. Yeah, winemakers, vineyard, everybody everybody that has their hand in trying to uh, kind of find the way is is welcome to sit down in, in our little group. And the deal is that when you come to those those meetings, it's you have to come into it and not think that you're like showing off your best. Yeah, leave your ego at the door for sure. And bring your worst one, and and I have one you need the most help with. And I have done that, and every time I find that the best part of it is that I get feedback from my my colleagues at the same level. And again, that's that to me is finding our way, and and that's that's been a very. Uh, you know, it is. It's kind of an emotional thing. It's one of those items that the number of times I've been, you know, you go to an event and you pour a glass of wine for somebody and whether they love it or hate it, it's it's like, you know, you could have literally, you know, spilled blood trying to do the work and broken your back to make it all happen. And they're just like, oh, it's not that good. It's not my thing. And, and at the end of the day, I, I, I think that I got... Not, not like a resilience to that, but I had seen people do that day in and day out on a, at the sales floor at a wine shop. And so I knew that that was just human nature. It's, for me, a matter of finding a way to kind of connect with someone still. There's, there's a way to connect with someone. It's not, that, it's not that black and white. Come by here on a Saturday or a Sunday, but you'll see plenty of people yeah, connecting yeah. with it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, I like to visit on a Friday. There's, there's, a little quiet. there's less competition. <laughs> so one thing we've kind of touched around a little bit too is, is you know, what has the brand of Parker been? If you had to think back about it, like the marketing aspect of it, how would you say, this is who we are? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's a great question. That's a question we have to constantly ask ourselves. Who are we and what are we and how do we project it to the general market? And to my thinking, we haven't got there yet. I mean, I, I guess maybe again, you might be too close to it to see it. Um, for me, wine production is one, one A and one B. I mean, what, what we grow and what we make has to rule the roost, so to speak. Because no, no matter how awesome the environment, no matter how great your customer service, all the things that we believe we excel at, it doesn't matter at the end of the day if your product sucks. So I feel like we've gotten to the point now where, at least I have, and this is these are the weird conversations I have with myself. That <laughs> Set <on> the tractor. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> tractor time. In the truck and the ride in and the ride home, laying in my bed at night. But yeah, it's we're producing wines we're proud to serve and that we, like Justin said, put your blood, sweat, tears, and back into. Um, all the while doing it in an environment that I feel like, you know, I've been to plenty of wineries around the state here. Unfortunately, I haven't been to a ton of them on a Saturday or a Sunday, but I walk into our place, I see the people's faces. I, I see them when they leave and they're bringing back friends. And it's, we have, we've made this environment that is extremely comfortable. It is extremely relatable. It is extremely comfortable. If I didn't already say that, let's say it three times, comfortable. <laughs> we, uh, we're trying to have fun. I said it earlier. We don't want to take the fun out of wine. Um, we also don't want to be a bar, but I and I'd say this with pride. You know, we're probably the closest to it in the state because we have promoted this environment where people feel like a watering hole. People come around, they want to stay all day. We encourage them to do that. Come hang out, spend the day with us, bring your children. We are a family establishment. We want families. That's why we have the animals That's so the children can interact with them. We have farm animals. Bring your puppies, bring your family, bring a blanket and a picnic. I mean, yes, we have a kitchen, but if you want to have a picnic on the grounds, do that. Um, you know, and I guess that's not unconventional, but 
we pride ourselves in customer service and the quality of the wines more than anything. I, I think we deliver on both stages. Yeah, but that that's all true what you say, but it's still, it's not the brand. I mean, the, brand, the brand, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It is the brand, but, but I, I think we need to, to me, I'm going back to the road sign where mission you see something and that's the brand identification. I guess, well, there's maybe a difference. Mission brand statement. identification and what the identification stands for. Yeah. Okay, I get that. If you wanted to keep it in three short words. <laughs> Great wine, fun times, better people, man. There you go. Put it on the table. <laughs>
at the heart to understanding wine. So he's like giving folks the science behind wine. And it's one of the first books out there for wine at this time that had science behind the heart of wine. Mm-hmm. And this does seem very French and very yeah. like terroir and rules and exactly tradition and so science as well. Let's remember Chaptal, not for <laughs> chapelization, but for yeah. putting science to wine. And I couldn't have said the title of his book better myself. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> so apparently the rest of it was Avec l'art de faire la vin, les eaux de vie, esprit de vin, vigneur simple et composé. So it basically meant the art of making wine, the water of life, the spirit of wine, hmm. simple vinegars and composé. So com- compositions, I guess. You so, shorten that title. Yeah, <laughs> it was a long title, apparently. So. Uh, did they have the Dewey Decimal System back then? <laughs> <laughs> Probably be in the 900s, yeah. maybe? I don't remember. I don't remember. But anyway, yeah. carry on with the 1800s. Right. So we are actually going to move to the new world, new world now. And we are going to talk about the settling of Australia. So it's really hard to have these hard, fast rules about time and history. Because our wine history of Australia actually technically begins in the 1700s. I'm really sorry because we could have talked about this last time. But in 1770, there was a guy named Captain James Cook. Thank God for these British names. Uh, But he reached Botany Bay and sailed to Cape York, and he claimed the coast for Great Britain. And in 1788, a group of soldiers, settlers, and everyone's favorite, convicts, arrived to form a penal colony. Because if you've got criminals, you want to get them as far away as possible. So the colony was very isolated, obviously, and they needed to become self-sufficient as quickly as possible. So along with other food crops, they planted grapes. Unfortunately, they did not do well in the humid climate of the Sydney Harbor. Um, By 1791, again, sorry, we're lost so last century, but Arthur Phillip, who was the governor of the settlement there, had established a small vineyard about 12 miles inland from the Sydney Harbor, And here, the weather was a lot drier and vines were way more successful because it was not so humid. Because we know in North Carolina, for example, where we are, um, the humidity can be a big problem. So a little more further inland, things are looking better for them. One of the first commercial grape growers in Australia was a guy named John MacArthur. Okay, we're We're there. (laughs) Just a hop, skip, and a jump. Um, but he was famously known, actually, for being the first person to import merino sheep to Australia. And these sheep would become the mainstay of the nation's wool industry, Australia's first major agricultural export, even, like, yeah, way more important than grapes at this time. In 1805, John MacArthur was granted 2,000 acres of grazing land outside Sydney, and 10 years later, 1815, he began an 18-month-long journey through Europe, which I feel like would take a long time anyways, because, like, they didn't, you know, yeah. you can just, like, drive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he began an 18-month-long journey with his two sons, and their goal was to learn the craft of winemaking and obtain grape cuttings to bring back with them to Australia. So following that 18-month journey, by 1820, he'd established a 20-acre vineyard outside Sydney, and within the next 10 years, they were producing more than 20,000 gallons of wine a year. Wow. So that was a fruitful journey through Europe for him. Another important guy we have in Australia is a guy named Gregory Blackland, and he established a vineyard in 1818 and experimented with a lot of different grape varieties and other crops, and he was the first person to send wine from Australia back to Britain in 1822. Now, what do you know about that journey from Australia to Britain? It's long. Long, yeah. Yeah. And sea-based. Yeah. <laughs> so the wines had to be fortified. We knew at this point that wines would travel better if they're fortified. So wines were fortified with brandy to protect them from spoilage. And in London, his once those wines got back, they were awarded a silver medal in 1823. And in 1828, they won the gold. So mm. thank you, fortified Australian wines. Which we don't think of nowadays. They must have been lost to time. Yeah. 
We also get a guy named James Busby, and this is a name you're going to want to remember. And in 1824, he immigrated to Australia, and then he traveled to France, like roundabout kind of way. Right. I mean, Australians are really paying for their folks yeah. to travel the world. I can't imagine this sea voyage. But so he traveled to France, and he, he was going to study grape growing and winemaking. He was given 2,000 acres in the Hunter River Valley, established what is now the most important wine region in Australia. He's also known as the um, one of Australia's pioneering winemakers and the father of the wine industry in Australia. So... Right, so he immigrates to Australia, is there for a while, and then he travels to Europe to learn more about winemaking and to get cuttings of more than 500 different varieties of grapes. When he returned to Australia, he donated the majority of those cuttings to the government and established, well, the government then established an experimental garden. And from these cuttings from Spain and France, he introduced Syrah and Grenache to the region, which are now really important grapes for Australia. And he wrote a lot of books on winemaking and grape growing in Australia, but he left the country in 1833. So he was only there for nine years and did a lot of stuff. He was a busy guy. Mm -hmm. Sounds like an overachiever. Yeah. Yeah. We would not have been friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also get two doctors, Dr. Lindemann and Dr. Pinfold. And Dr. Lindemann, I don't know, are you familiar with these names? I mean, Pinfold, for sure. Yeah. So Dr. Lindemann settled in the Hunter River Valley in 1841, and Dr. Pinfold was in Adelaide in South Australia in 1844. Dr. Pinfold actually brought vine cuttings with him on a boat from Europe. So just like tending to us. Yeah, like grape got bags. Got a bag of grape bags. Got a bag of Yeah, of course. You don't know what you're going to need in the new world. Um, and he planted a vineyard as fast as he got there, and he was as he was also establishing a medical practice. You know, in those days, like, wine was medicine, and yeah. medicine yeah. was wine, and all the things, so it makes sense to me. Also in Australia, though, at the same time, we get three boatloads, literally, boatloads. Oh, but literal boatloads of people. <laughs> um, of German Celestials. Were they sloshed? They were, they well, were sloshed. German. Yeah. Well, no, they were de-sloshed. Oh, okay. So they had no castle. They had no home. So Silesians. So Silesia is a historic region in Central Europe. It's one of those that's like knows no borders exactly, or you know has been part of different countries throughout history. But it's mostly in Poland, but parts of it are in Germany and the Czech Republic. So these Silesians who were desloshed, they arrived in South Africa in 1842, and they were religious refugees fleeing from the excesses of the king of Prussia. And they were trying to get to a place where they heard that they would have religious freedom and also land. Because what do you need when you want to go be free? You need land and places to, you know, plant stuff and grow and whatever. Oh, South Australia. Yeah. Did I say the wrong thing? Wrong thing. <laughs> you did say South Africa. Like, South Australia. South okay. Sorry. So let me back this up. I left out part of those words. So they arrived in South Australia in 1842. They had heard that there was religious freedom and land available, and the first families settled in the Barroso Valley, and they began to plant vineyards. And to this day, most of the old grape growers in Barroso are direct descendants of those first settlers, those Germans. Hmm. Yeah. Also another theme we've seen throughout history, like religious freedoms and people going out and doing stuff. Um, so we're trying to kind of keep our discussion to the first half of the 1800s today, but we're going to jump over just a little bit past that. And in 1852 in Australia, not Austria, (laughs) or Africa, or Africa, um, in 1852 in Australia, they discovered gold. They, I don't know who did it, but somebody did. Someone discovered gold. So the wine industry was starting to take off. Things were starting to happen. Unfortunately, due to the gold rush, that takes away all the possible labor that would have been devoted to wine um, and moves that over to the gold rush instead. People are going for that. However, it also brought in many new immigrants, and the population of Australia doubled to just over 1 million between 1850 and 1860. So, like, huge exponential growth. 
in the 1800s in Australia. And over the second half of the 1800s, the wine business expanded slowly. Um, so that was not the focus at this time. International and domestic tariffs discouraged the shipping of wine out of its home state. We also see a very active temperance movement in Australia, which kind of diminished the kind of demand and supply and all the things for wine. So not so good. All right. So we're going to talk about another new world country. We'll come back to Australia in our next um, section in our next class about our next discussion of. But so in New Zealand, New Zealand was a British colony. And the British colony in New Zealand lasted from 1841 to 1907. So right at the tail end of our 1800s discussion today. And some important names to know. One is Reverend Samuel Marsden. And he was chaplain to New South Wales and was the driving force behind the establishment of an Anglican mission, or, well, missions in New Zealand in the early 19th century. Um, his work helped build a relationship of trust positive thing between um, the Anglicans and the Maori chiefs and paved the way for the acceptance of an official crown presence in New Zealand. It seems a little bit different, like mm -hmm. that rela relationship and respect and trust rather than just going in. Here we are. Um, but this guy, Samuel Marsden, planted the first vinifera vines in, on the North Island in 1819. And we know this because he recorded it in his diary. On the day he planted it. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, dear diary, he wrote. <laughs> um, yeah, and he has a nice little passage about how New Zealand promises to be a very favorable, very favorable to the vine, as far as I can judge. Um, so he already can see the importance back in 1819 as he's he's introducing it. In 1836, we get a nine guy named James Busby. What? Again? What? Yeah. And he, by way of Australia, settled in a place in New Zealand that starts with a W, Watangi. I don't know. Um, and he planted grapes and made New Zealand's very first wine. So thank you, James Busby, for coming all the way over here. However, the industry was very slow to develop, and it's, it spread across the North Island in a very small scale. Things are moving slow. Um, yeah, so that's New Zealand. And All right. The new world in the so early 1800s. Yeah. We're going to hop back over, hit back into Europe. We're going to talk a little bit about Italy. Um, so specifically in Barolo. So Barolo is talked about as Italy's leading wine. Um, but what's the grape? It's a new Oh, no, Barolo, sorry, Nebbiolo. Nebbiolo, yeah. yes. Chianti. <laughs> That's okay. We've, had a, we've yeah, traveled we're the world. Um, but Nebbiolo is an old grape. Some people think that Pliny the Elder wrote about it. Um, others say that it's DNA threads all the way back to the ancient wines of Georgia. Um, anywho, in Barolo, it wasn't doing so well. So they had it planted in Barolo, um, and we have the politician Cavour, and he was a patriot who led the surge towards Italian unification. But he was not sure about Nebbiolo. So he decided to plant 12 acres of Pinot Noir hmm. because he wanted something like Burgundy. Um, but Pinot Noir didn't grow well, couldn't create it. So he's bummed. So he consulted with another local landowner, the Marchesa de, de Borolo. She also enjoyed French wines, but she didn't like the wine when she came back. So these people had traveled to France. They didn't. They loved it there. They wanted the wine when they came home. Um, but Cavour hired a French winemaker to come and sort things out. So Louis Odar um, was actually from Champagne, but he was hired by the politician, but he was also hired by the Marchesa in 1843. So Odar found that Nebbiolo was cropped too heavily. It ripened late. It was picked, put in um, cellars that weren't clean, so it was going through fermentation erratically. So he decided to fix things. So Odar cut the yields, picked the grapes right, which now seems like common sense, right? Um, cleaned the cellars, brought in new equipment, heated, and he heated the fermentation to produce a full-flavored 
rye red wine because before it was slightly spritzy and sweet and not good. Um, so he made the first Barolo as we think of Barolo today. Um, but King Carol Alberto of Savoy liked Marchesa's new wine so much, he ordered a barrel for every day of the year, oh, excluding wow. Lent, of course. Wow. <laughs> have to get something up for that. Yeah. So. Um, so yes, this we see in the 1800s, the starting, what we consider the modern day Barolo. Oh. By a French man. By a French man. So we are reaching the middle point of the 1800s. And we're getting, getting close to where we will stop. So we talked about this French guy in Italy and his importance. And so we're going to go back to France now and imagine yourself in Bordeaux in 1855. Hmm. Yeah, okay, so we're all there. Prior to this, the merchants of Bordeaux had been unofficially classifying properties in Bordeaux since the 1600s. So this was nothing new. Um... But Bordeaux's wine development was built on trade. Um, and they've been, you know, saying which properties are important and doing well and all the things way before the 1800s. And this site has been really important, even all the way back to Roman times. All right, so we've talked about how there's no hard and fast rules on dates and history, and they all kind of flow together. So we're, we've imagined ourselves in Bordeaux in the 1800s, but this has been a really important time and place for wine all the way back to Roman times and before. And wine development has been built in Bordeaux, and merchants in Bordeaux have been unofficially classifying properties here since the 1600s, maybe even before. This hierarchy was developed, and the first classification occurred in 1647, influenced by the Dutch traders who were in the area. And they put Sauternes at the top here because it was the most expensive, had the highest prices. Now, they made classifications in the Bordeaux region in 1816, 1824, 1828, and 1848, but it was done by the Chamber of Commerce and wine brokers. So it was really all about money, not about quality. That money was the main driving factor here. And there was a hierarchy of five price levels. What was that for quality? Like, does price beget quality? Who knows? So in 1855, Napoleon III, the Emperor of France, decided to throw a universal exposition in Paris to represent the country's wines. Uh, the Syndicat of Courtiers was asked by the Chamber of Commerce to come up with a list of Grand Cru classes or classified growths, and they kind of rank these, and there have been very few changes since. So the idea of a chateau stems from this classification. As of the classification, only five estates called themselves chateaus, but by 1874, there were 700 chateaus and by 1,300 er, by 1893. So this gave people a way to note legitimacy and to get, also get higher prices. So higher prices, better quality. We'll leave the consumer to decide. Um, but that, that Bordeaux 1855 classification kind of set the stage for the modern French system of wine quality control. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. But so that makes for talking about food pairings. Yeah. yeah. All right. So remember our guy, Choptal? Mm, yes. Me. All the yeah. So where else do you know that capitalizes wine? Oh, there's lots of places. I mean, of course. But like... I mean, we don't need to call anyone out or anything, but I'm just saying, like, here in North Carolina, it happens. It does, yeah. So, North Carolina wine makes a very natural pairing with North Carolina foods. So what do you think with North Carolina? Well, barbecue, Yeah, of course. Of course. So, uh, we think capitalized sweeter wines would pair nicely with North Carolina wine, uh, barbecue. Lexington style, of course. Of course. If there is any other kind of barbecue. Well, it says the girl from Davidson <laughs> County. We like all barbecue. Just just all FYI. We'll do an episode on Eastern style mm-hmm. another time. I mean, it probably would work. I mean, some muscadine wine with some Eastern style. Yeah. It's probably going to go. Food too. Yeah. Um, so Barolo we talked about too. And this could pair nicely with a lot of heartier, meatier, gamier, richer things. 
anything from a, just a charcuterie board to risotto, pasta, like mushroom heavy dishes, mm. um, I think could be a nice thing. People say wild boar. I've never had it, but no, could be interesting. I know people say it. I'm like, are you going to back yourself up on this? Yeah, really. Give me some wild boar. Um, so we also talked about new world countries. So Australia and New Zealand. So Australia, what do you think of? Sharia's. Sharia's. We also, of course, think of oh, those little sheep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they're probably, well, they're probably not so tasty, but certain varieties of Yeah. Them. But a Shiraz. Well, what's the little sheep? Well, okay. Well, I'm not going to eat the, I'm not going to eat. They're a little too fluffy, right? With yes. a Shiraz. But, but Shiraz and a lamb pairing would be nice. Yes. But this is sure. a bad segue because in Australia, they do have these little things called baby doll lambs. And they're so cute and so little, and they're like bred to be shorter, so they can just roam freely among the vines and just nibble Aww. their way and, and eat help. everything but the grapes. Yeah, they're so cute and little, and they're not for eating. And or... they they probably only eat like weeds and plants. Yeah, right? certainly. But but that's helpful still. Yeah, and they're yeah. adorable. Yeah, they're so and cute. so somebody in North Carolina should get baby dolls. Yes. Yeah. And they have these little ringlet curls, kind of. Yeah. And then they need some chateau or some sloshes. <laughs> but I would not recommend a baby doll lamb shiraz because that just seems no. cruel. And I mean, unless you're like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like having some lamb yoga or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in the vineyard with your shiraz. Mine with a yogurt sauce, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fun. Um, so New Zealand, of course, we can't talk about New Zealand without talking about Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, which goes with anything, anything, almost anything, but especially like herbaceous dishes. Most of the things, anything spicy, flavorful, Thai food, hot all summer of our day. Food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The best wine. Um, we also talked about Bordeaux and the Bordeaux classification in 1855, setting the groundwork for the. Um, AOC system in France. So here we could do a lot of things. Roasted veggies, roasted duck, gamey, meaty, fatty things, lots of oil. I'm just picturing like, I don't know, steak frites. Cassoulet. Cassoulet. Yeah. Like, yeah. French peasant food. Any of those things could be great. So I don't know. Any other additions? I'm hungry now. <laughs> it's happening again. Never not hungry. All right. Well, we look forward to the next half of the 1800s, which is the a, 19th century. But we hear there's a scandal that's going to be talking yes. about next time. So All stay right. tuned. There are alligators. It is a cross-country yes. romp. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Did I get away too Way to set that up. Yeah. There may be some embezzlement. Light right. embezzlement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, tune in next Maybe, time. Maybe, yeah. It's going to be exciting. Jesse Jessica, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. for having us. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. <laughs> well, you know what I like? I was going through some old videos because... We're going to put out a couple of videos. And we've got videos of like different Saturday, Sunday afternoons and the pig picking and all. And you see the family, Corey has just said, you, you, see the, you, you see the families on the lawn. You see little kids playing with a ball. I mean, it all goes together. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh-oh, come over here. We have a special guest joining yeah. us. <laughs> she's been mentioned many times during this That's conversation, right. but she's Hi, finally yes. making an appearance. Welcome to the conversation, Grant. Oh, she has a check for us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Parker Benz. Come on out and see us. We're a fun place, great wine, and good people. <laughs> see, she's That's the brand. So she just answers the brand. Just came up with the brand. I think she just. It's funny. You, you said the exact. I said, yeah, great wine. Or I said, great wines, good times, better people. Okay, what were we talking about? Branding. Oh, we're gonna wait until Grimms. I think you resolved the uh, branding I we, question. I think we're going to the branding. Oh, yeah. was that the <laughs> you got it from Karen. Okay, we're we going to use the Yellowstone brand. <laughs> <laughs>
what else? So let's say, let's, let's say looking back, so you've been at this for 14 years now, I think you said, right? Yeah. So what's left the biggest impact on you over the years? Biggest impact? Biggest impact? Wow. That's a very good question. I, I'd never thought of that. It's the biggest impact. Well, I would say just the growth that we went through. I mean, we went from where I remember we were making 200 cases of wine, and I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> and then it went to 500. And now we're not at 3,000 yet, but we're knocking on the door. And uh, I, like I talked to Justin about this. I say, where should we go and call it quits? I mean, we don't want to get to be that big winery that just, we don't want to be a factory. We want to still keep that personal artistic touch to the winemaking. So how many cases is that? And we're still debating that. Is it 3,000, 3,200, 2,900? We'll, we'll find it. And when we find it, we'll know that we're there. So that would, to me, that would be what I would think would be the biggest impact. The biggest impact for me, uh, I would say the nuance and learning to come to grips with how nuanced this thing is. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed black and white. I come from the military. Um, but also how much has to go into the vineyard here, the winery side of it. You know, when I, when I first was asked, I didn't volunteer, was asked to come and do this. I was excited because I was like, all right, yeah, I challenged you in the first minute. However, you know, it was, all right, you're going to need to learn every corner of this business. And I've, I've tried my absolute best to continue to make sure that the vineyard works as advertised and as good as it can be every year while simultaneously just trying to learn something every day. Um, and I'd say the two, two of the three people, in fact, the other one just left that I've learned the most in this industry from her, two of them are sitting at the table with us now. Um, and then via, via independent research and, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to go to school, but man, it has been, it has been like life changing learning this thing. And then, you know, hopefully getting better at it each year, just because I've been surrounded with awesome people and, you know, blood in some of it. But JT's, JT's a brother at this point, anyways, too. So that is definitely the biggest impact. How about for you, Justin? How can you follow that? I mean, I th yeah. No, I mean, I, I, so I've had, I've had a, the only thing that I think would, would really define the impact that I have had as I've had a chance to work with Bob and Karen, but also being in the North Carolina industry, because before I even worked with Bob and Karen, I, I knew of them. I saw them at conferences. There was always that educational backbone, and, and we still do have an educational backbone in the state for the industry. But what I would summarize that with is determination. So one of the biggest things that I think outlines the industry and then as it boils down to Parker Bins is that determination can produce good and bad results. And I think that one of the one of the most important things in the you know, the determination of what Bob and Karen had was that they were planting a vineyard. They didn't know where it was going, but they very quickly realized that they needed to get focused on what the next step was. And as we brought more into the fold, being the fact that not only were we making the wine, but at one point, Bob had me trying to drive the tractor too and manage parts of the vineyard. And it was, it was one of those things that I looked at and thought, we've got the energy, we've got the focus, but we're missing, we're like missing something. So for Corey to have come in right when he did, everything sort of just went to the next step. And that's not to say that it's just a back of house item. It's also to say that when we were doing all of this on the front of house, uh, Corey's mom, Bob's daughter, Kelly, you know, her and Karen were spending so much time on the front of house and it was time with customers and it was time with suppliers and it was time with people who came in and asked about, you know, what we're doing and what are we excited about and what are the plans that are, that are, have, that are in store for the future. And they would all kind of come back to the table and say, okay, 
So the bad side of determination is that you have to sit down and say, there are only so many things that we can push forward and something's going to have to lose. And I think at the end of the day, we've, we've tried really hard and had, I mean, I feel like we've had tough conversations over what do you choose and then what do you get behind and have the enthusiasm and the excitement to say, all right, we, we made it to that mark. Like Bob said, where's the ceiling? Because, you know, at the end of the day, I am very fortunate to do what I do based on the fact that, you know, let's just boil it down to dollars and cents that Bob and Karen have invested in what's happening here. So if he just said, I think we should have a 10,000 case facility, well, then you sit down and you write out what that looks like. It's the road map. (laughs) Yeah, then, then that's where we're going. But we've done it really in increments and he's done it in increments that uh, by he, I mean, Bob in increments where he could find a footing pretty quick. So it wasn't ever a a giant leap. Uh, And I think that that's, that's where it just comes back to trying to make sure that if you're going to, if you're going to push for that next level, that you're not, you're not going to do it and, and kind of go off the deep end. So Determination for me, that's that's the most impactful part of the North Carolina wine business. And it exists here for sure at Parker Benz. So before we wrap up, though, there's one, one Bob story that I, I want to get to. So and there's another wine that Bob had a hand in helping name. <laughs> so can we talk about that <laughs> oh, one yeah. a minute? Yeah. Because that was pretty unique. So. Yeah. The, the traditional method sparkling wine? Yeah, that would be it. Yeah. yeah so we... We had a making fun of Bob Day. No, it's, no, it's, it's, it's just a story that everyone needs to hear. Yeah, yeah. You know, before you get to that, let me say, in the last thing Justin was saying about the termination, he was talking about how the fruit would come in and he would make it. Justin is very polite and courteous, but he used to be a lot of times disappointed with the fruit that I would bring. <laughs> <laughs> and. Adolfo and I didn't get it exactly the way he wanted it all the time, but now he feels that Corey Spring is better. <laughs> and he got rid of me in growing the fruit. Hey man, no, it was a dive in. I mean, he had a clean slate. Justin had a, a, a sponge that was saying, I know nothing, teach me everything. And, you know, and we, we jumped and dove with that. I mean, and I think that yeah, where we're going, again, like what he said, it's the leap of faith. We haven't made that leap of faith yet if we wanted to be the 10,000 case facility. Well, wait a minute. We went from three to 10? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you got your goals, I got mine. So, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll you get this. too big, and then uh, it's not, you get, well, well what's your lesson? Do you think there's yeah. any factories, as you said, in the state right now? And you don't have to name them. In fact, I'd encourage you not to. But do you think there's a factory in the state? No, no, no. So no, I'm, I'm just. There's some room there. There's some people pushing out yeah, some pretty hefty cases. Uh, you know. All right. What, but, what am I going to say? Nothing. But I'll I'll be quiet. We'll talk. Hard for me to do, but I'll be quiet. We'll talk. Is this a first? Should we mark this down? Bob's going to be quiet. Absolutely. Put it on calendar. But in building out that idea, there was a point where Bob had some enthusiasm over the idea of making sparkling wine, and. When I was a student at Surrey, we made a lot of traditional method sparkling wine. And I, I had a, I had probably 60% of that kit in the back of my mind, but I was not totally set on where it was going to go as it related to what Bob wanted to do. So started to propose the idea, spend a little bit of time talking to other people in the industry who were doing it and specifically focusing on small scale. So one of the biggest issues that I think comes up, and this happened to me very early on, was just mentioning the idea that you're going to make sparkling wine to an equipment supplier. They're they're excited. I mean, it's like 10,000 for this, 10,000 for that. And I, I know that that is not the way that we're going to kind of bring something up. Uh, to start with. So had the, the whole you know base kit figured out, so to speak. But the one thing that was not even close to being figured out was what it was going to be called. And Bob was set on, and I had explained that it was going to be traditional method. 
Traditional method. Okay, so that that would be how we yeah that would be how we say it in the states. Or if you were French, you would say method chimpanois. And Bob came into the winery one day and started asking, "What are we gonna do with the method chimp chimp chimp?" And as I'm saying this, he was like rolling his hand, like there's more to the word. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm like, there is more to the word, but that's brilliant. <laughs> the chimp and so the method chimpanzee was born out of the idea that we sort of bootstrapped a project to make a sparkling rosé of merlot traditional method and it's i mean it, it stuck on an ism that came out of bob's mouth and it was one of those that as soon as it happened i just looked across the overall spectrum of branding in you know their family and the wines that they'd already had on the list and i saw that that was something that as far out as it would sound it fit and uh yeah i don't i don't remember at which point i even felt like i was selling the idea because again <laughs> just like when it. bob was looking at me saying method shimp 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 i'm going a chimp that's, that's what it is that's what it is and it's kind of like the onus of our place right that name it's like the, making light of something that is otherwise serious or that's right people may perceive as serious that's right uh, a bottle of a bottle of bubbles or could be more so now i think that that one <laughs> the chimpanzee for me i tell everybody in the tasting room you know it's cute and funny on the label but it's all business under the crown cap it's a, a damn good spark. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on that, guys, I, I think that Justin and I have had this conversation so many times. The state, we could be doing so much more of it here. Yeah. And if there's more people that are interested in making sparkling wine, especially looking through the same lens as somebody like, say, Bob Binns, where, hey, you know, $50,000 startup is just not a thing. I mean, I would encourage them to reach out. I mean, we've always been open. And Justin, I know for sure, like, he can tell you how to do it with a 50-gallon drum for a disgorging booth. He can, he can get you there without having to spend the bank account. And then, hey, find out if your customers enjoy it. But I think I, as a grower, we can grow to 17 bricks with good asset every year here. It can be done every single year. Um, to me, it's something that needs to be explored more. And sparkling wine's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is yeah. a lot of fun. Absolutely. It's a lot of work, though. It is a ton of work. Yeah, I'll be the first to admit that it is a ton of work. <laughs> but then at the end of the day, to me, I don't know why. It's one of the most exciting wines to make. Yeah. It is one of the most exciting wines to make. Maybe it's that maybe it's that point where you take a still wine and then the next time you start to interact with it, it's full just, of CO2 and carbonation and perlage, and there's just this like magic in the glass. And it's like, wow, that is cool. Maybe you not only touch the tank a million times, but you touch each bottle. Yeah, you literally, yeah. Oh, maybe it's one on, one on one with the it's bottle. all that skin contact you're getting. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> Well, thanks for sharing that, that story. That, Absolutely. I want to make sure our Good listeners oh, man. Uh, heard Very that. And, and certainly we encourage everyone when you come visit to grab a bottle of that. It's, it's only available here at the library, correct? Right? That's correct. Yep. And online. You can get it online. Okay. So That's speaking sick. of coming to visit it online, so tell us how can customers find you? We are at Parker www.parkerbinsvineyard.com. That's all one word. We, uh, we're Parker Bins Vineyard on Facebook, Instagram. We don't use we don't use Twitter, not to say that you shouldn't, but we just we just have not. Um, and then I would encourage anybody that goes to our website to check out our events tab. Uh, we have our pig picking coming up here at the end of April, uh, the twenty second, and that's uh, it's it's our big party of the year, if you will, um, an all day music festival, so to speak. Uh, I'll roast one or two. Uh, whole whole hogs. hogs, and then we'll do a bunch of smoked pork butts barbecue sauce competition. We'll have a ton of vendors at the site. Uh, it's an all-day affair. We have people camping the night before, the night of, and then sometimes the night after. And then, uh, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, events are a, a mainstay. Definitely something we pride ourselves in here. So we try to th throw a fun event as we try to be the fun vineyard. So check that out for sure. And physically, you're located where? <laughs> Twenty-two seventy-five Whitesides Road here in Mill Spring, North Carolina. So we're about five minutes away from the Tryon International Equestrian Center. And that's right um, off of US 74. So it's an easy yeah. drive from Charlotte, Asheville, Hendersonville, that's right. Greenville, Spartanburg, wherever yeah. you're road, listening. It's a good center. Well, I just, I just came down from Asheville. It took me 48 minutes. It takes me about the same thing to get to Greenville. 
about 30 to get to Spartanburg and about an hour to get an hour and 10 minutes to get to Charlotte. Yeah. So good location and easy, easy accessibility. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. And third time is a charm. It's been tried three times. This yeah. is the third time we tried to do this interview. We're so glad Bob's here to, to join us. We're glad Karen made a guest appearance as well. Uh, thank you. Um, and we look forward to coming back again soon. Well, thank, thank you. you for coming. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, gentlemen. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Bob, Corey, Justin, and our special guest, Karen. We are very grateful that they were able to host us for the conversation, and we highly recommend you plan a visit. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at NC Wine Guides. Until next time, and remember... Cork only talks. It's out of the bottle. Cheers. Cork Talk is a free run LLC production. This episode was made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.